0: This was obviously more of a strategic growth uh, opportunity that Harvest Host was looking for. They had, I knew they had just taken, um, they had taken a bunch of, of funding. They had announced a $37 million round uh, only a wow. few months prior to that. So, I mean, I knew they had a bunch of money to spend and the, the, you know, the, the reason for their purchase was they had, you know, about 3000 winery hosts. And I knew that they would essentially want to add our hosts to that mix in some way to essentially increase their, their footprint. So it was, it was definitely a strategic uh, buy. So I knew that, you know, our, our, uh, our, our multiple would be able to be substantially bigger than that three, 3. To four.
1: yeah it's, it's interesting when a strategic acquirer, a company you think has a as a really good you know a good rationale to buy your company raises a truckload of money like 37 million dollars uh i think there's, there's sort of two things that can happen um one is that they've got a war chest to go buy your business which clearly you hoped and, and thought that Joel was clearly coming to you thinking, you know, with that intent. The other side though, is that they've got a war chest to compete with you. And and if you don't nibble on the offer, it could mean that, okay, fine. Well, the gloves are off. I, I, we're gonna go do something on our own to compete with you. Did, did that cross your your mind that Joel would take that $37 million and create his own version of Boondogger's Walk. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your host, John Marlowe. Today on the show, we're going to hear from Anna Mast, who turned down an offer of 3.9 times ARR, annual recurring revenue, in 2019, only to get a whole lot more in 2021. She'll talk about how she did that. Before we get there, though, I just want to make sure you know you can nominate a guest for Built to Sell Radio. Some of our best episodes like Anna are from people like you who nominate business owners who have sold a company. So I'd love for you to think about who you might want to nominate, a business owner who you think is a short a story worth sharing with our community? Just go to builttocell.com slash nominate. And while you're on built to sell, you'll also see the show notes for Anna's episode. We're making a, a marked improvement in, in in how we approach our show notes. So there you'll see references to all of the things we talk about on today's show, some of the other guests in the past that we reference, and also some definitions of some of the lingo and technical terms, which may be new to you, all at BuiltToSell.com. So check that out. But first, got to go to Anna Mast, because this is a real... Kind of master class in bootstrapping a two sided market. We're going to talk about one way you can increase your revenue with one simple decision right now. How to overcome the fear of making your first hire, something I know a lot of people feel squeezy about. How to leverage Facebook groups to grow your business organically. How to know when an acquirer has the means to buy your business. How to bootstrap the growth of a two-sided market. Accelerate word of mouth. Avoid one of the biggest causes of strife in a family business. Increase your prices without causing churn. Replace yourself inside your business and find your next great employee. Here to tell you all about it is Anna Mast. Anna Mast, welcome to Built to Cell Radio.
0: Thanks, John. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Boondockers, welcome. Okay, I'll bite. What on earth does this company do? <laughs>
0: So Boondockers Welcome is a platform for RVers to connect with other like-minded people who will let you camp on their private property for a night or two for free. So this is like
1: Airbnb for RVs. Is that, am I getting it? The You're, analogy right? you're
0: in the right ballpark. Um, so there are a couple other companies um, like uh, hip camp that are sort of on that Airbnb model where you pay to rent somebody's private property. Boondockers welcome works on more of a couch surfing model where oh, the cool. hosts are actually uh, voluntarily letting People stay for free, and most of them are RVers or former RVers themselves, and they're more in it for the social aspect. They, you know, the the RV community tends to be quite tight knit. They they uh, form very fast friendships, and they really enjoy each other's company, and that's part of why people RV. And so, the, the this sort of online community just became a natural extension of that
1: my wife has this secret fantasy about renting an RV and driving all across the years. Like <laughs> we always talk about it. I've never done it and she always talks about it. So one day I'm going to have to become an RVer now, but this is, this is horribly stereotypical, but my sense is RVers are a little bit older and maybe the interaction with other people, the community building, that's, you know, especially if you live in a rural area, it's probably nice to actually have some other interaction with human beings every once in a while. Am I getting into the, the, The headspace a little bit?
0: Yeah, you're right. I would say the average Boondockers Welcome host is, you know, either retired or semi-retired, you Mm -hmm. know, and has a, you know, more rural property. Although there are a bunch of hosts who, you know, have urban driveways. My own, you know, downtown driveway is not very big, but you can come park your small class B sort of camper van sized RV in my driveway for a night. Um, But the majority of our hosts are probably of that uh, age, partly because that tends to be the age where people actually have property big enough to host anybody. Yeah, the but time the average, to drive around and <laughs> yeah, but the average guest actually has the age of the average guest has decreased significantly in the in the last ten years, right? Because and of course,
1: the pandemic just threw jet fuel on this whole industry, right? One hundred percent, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: you know, there was already a movement for people to, you know, stop working their their office jobs and go remote. And, and yeah, that just happened tenfold more frequently in the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Wow. So what's the business model? Like, how do you make money doing this?
0: The guests pay an annual membership. So it's currently $50 a year to have access to all of the hosts. And like I said, the hosts don't accept any money um, unless you, some of them will offer an electric hookup, in which case it is common courtesy to compensate them for their out-of-pocket costs. But the uh, Boondockers Welcome, as a business, our business model is essentially providing the service for the guests. So they pay an annual membership fee to the company.
1: How did you land on that as a business model?
0: Um, the other options I mean the the paper night model has a very different feel to it um, plus there's a lot of, Uh, logistics, both for a company and for a host that you have to jump through. All of a sudden the hosts are running a business. They have to, you know, claim that on their taxes. They have to make sure that their insurance covers that. Whereas, you know, the idea of inviting other RVers to come stay on your property was something that already happened all the time in the RV industry. They, um, you know, people would meet and hand out cards saying, Oh, if you're ever in my neck of the woods, come stay in my driveway. So uh, it's a very easy guest to have an RVer who pulls up and you don't have to do anything, right. Except maybe run them an extension cord. So most hosts wouldn't even consider taking money. Um, So that wasn't really a, an option for us from a business model perspective. Um, The other option would have been sort of, you know, an advertising supported model. And that wasn't really something that was in our wheelhouse at all. And not something that I was really interested in learning and, it, you know, it, it took off people. It's pretty easy for people to justify spending $50 a year for what could be, a, you know, a, a, an endless supply of hosts. And mm-hmm. we, there are almost 3,000 hosts right now across North America. So a lot of options for that. $50 and how many,
1: how many members?
0: Uh, when we sold, we had about 12,000 annual members, guest wow. traveling members.
1: And what do they get for that? Like is it is it a a mobile app that they use or is it a desktop like web browser? So for a long time we
0: only had a web browser app, Um, and then shortly before we sold, we did finally release a a mobile app as well. But it provided a whole experience allowing once you uh, had a a paid membership, you could you you could browse all of the hosts before even even paying at that time. but once you paid, you could connect with hosts, request stays, very, you know, Airbnb-like interface in that respect. Um, and and hosts could manage, you know, any guests that they had. So we provided a, tried to provide a really good experience for that.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a classic two-sided market, which once they're going, I mean, this is a license to print money. It's an amazing business model, but boy, it is tough to get going because you've got to somehow keep the plates sort of circling in the air. you got to have enough hosts to make it worthwhile for the guy. And, and, and so how did you, like, I've got so many questions around that, but, but how did you get this thing off the ground? Because again, most two-sided markets have like tens of millions of dollars of VC money and they're, you know, they, they have enough money to sort of get both sides of the market in place. But I'm so fascinated because you didn't have any of that.
0: No, we had uh, a little bit of luck and uh, timing and uh, some some good um, uh, secret sauce, which was that my co-founder is my mother, who Hi. had been RVing for about uh, probably 10 or 15 years by the time we started uh, Boondockers Welcome. And she had sort of to help pay the travel bills um, started her, prior to Boondockers Welcome a um, e-travel guide. Uh, that she had her, her own website that she sold. Um, they're called the Frugal Shunpiker Guides to RVing, sort of geared towards finding free. Uh, camping on public land in the U.S. and there is a lot of it to be found, and some of it is beautiful and some of it is not. So she, you know, had a, you know a series of about six travel guides, and she had been selling those for you know five or seven years by the time we started Boondockers Welcome, and had a significant mailing list at that point of people who you know were interested, who were RVers, and, and people who were the seed hosts for Boondockers Welcome. So that was really the the thing that allowed us to start from nothing without a bunch of, you know, venture funding in our back pocket.
1: Family businesses are always tricky. How did you deal with the equity split with your mom? Because first of all, she's your mom. So that's hard. <laughs> not, not only that, she's come into this business with an asset, right? Because that's actually a significant asset as you've just characterized. I mean, she had a mailing list and not everybody has that. It took her years to develop. So how did you guys figure out who would take what split on the equity?
0: Yeah. So when she approached me with the idea, she was actually just looking for advice from me. I'm a computer engineer by trade. So she Mm -hmm. wanted to know, you know, if she tried, she was thinking of outsourcing the building of the platform essentially, and wanted to get my take on how much it would cost and what, you know, the best channels to find someone to do it would be. And I was, you know, a a little worried that she was going to pour her life savings into something that hadn't necessarily Mm -hmm. been fully vetted out. And again, being a computer engineer, I happened to be on maternity leave. And here in Canada, we're lucky enough to have 12 months of maternity leave. So I offered to use my maternity leave uh, time to, she would come and spend time with her new grandson and I built the the business for her. So my technical skills essentially was my sweat equity. And we ended up with a 50-50 split.
1: So you bribed your mom to babysit your kid. Is that basically... (laughs)
0: I don't think the there was any that, bribing going on there. I think happened. it was win, win, win all around.
1: Okay, got it. Okay, so you went with a 50-50 split, even though she had the list, but you had these, this the very rare skill set, the computer engineering and so forth. Got it. That makes sense. How quick was the trajectory here? Because again, my perception of two-sided markets is you kind of have to flip a switch and it has to just scale like overnight. Was that the case in your business? Like, did you guys just hit a switch or what was it like? Not what was the, like?
0: the truth is not at all. And um, partly because... This, and it was a side project for us for a very long time. I, you know, even after I went back to work, I, or, you know, my maternity leave ended, I went back to work. I was still working a full-time job and had, uh, you know, eventually two kids at home. I certainly, we didn't have the time or the money to to throw into it. And it's a relatively low lifetime value product. It's hard as a non-venture backed company to throw a bunch of money into advertising to try and build up that two-sided marketplace. And as it turned out, the timing, I think it it was still sort of early in the, you know, fully connected road travel time frame. Um, People were sort of just getting to the point where they, you know, had, you know, an iPad on the road all the time and were able to use that sort of platform. So nobody else was sweeping in underneath us to to steal that from us, Um, that, that first mover advantage that we had. Um, And because of the business model that we chose, it wasn't an appealing business model to any sort of venture backed company because it it, it didn't scale based on the number of nights that people stayed, right? It was $50 per per user flat, that was it. Um, Did
1: you you ever entertain any conversations with the VC community or any sort of investors? Uh,
0: Towards the very end, sort of as the pandemic really uh, peaked and RV travel really became um, very, very popular, uh, we did have several investors reach out to you know, inquire about whether or not we were interested in taking on any funding. And that was not something that was really in my interests whatsoever.
1: I want to get to that. Um, specifically to the VCs who are reaching out, the investors who are reaching out, did you get a sense of... The, their thesis, like what they would have done to your business model in order to make it more scalable, like would they have gone to the per night model, or did you get did you get any sense of what they would? What, what no, we it?
0: we never really got far enough into the conversations, and, and I never really got you know enough indication of value that they would provide okay. other than a bunch of money, <laughs> and right. yeah. The, the idea of trying to throw a bunch of rocket fuel on the company wasn't something that appealed to either uh, my mother or I. It, the we we always ran the company with a very customer centered focus. Our hosts, you know, were were essentially providing all of the value for us, and Sounds therefore good, yeah. it was imperative that we keep them as the top priority at all times. So you know, the idea of taking a bunch of money to try and grow our guest base while the host base didn't keep up was always something that we were afraid of and didn't want to push.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What was, could you estimate the lifetime value of a typical member?
0: Uh, The typical member would probably only have a membership for two years, somewhere in that vicinity, because they, you know, it, it was some of the, some people retire and then they're full-time RVers for, you know, five or 10 years. But the average RVer is probably only going to do that for a year or two before they, you know, feel they've seen everything and then they settle down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So a couple hundred or a hundred dollars of lifetime value would have been a a classic. So clearly you can't spend a ton to acquire customers at that rate. So you had this, uh, you mentioned your mom's, uh, travel guide list was uh, how many, a couple, 12,000 or something like people. And then how many were on that list? Do you remember?
0: Oh, I don't know how many people were on that list to begin with. Uh, at, at the time when we launched though, we did, we had about 200 hosts who signed up sort of from that initial list. So. From
1: that initial, Okay. Yeah. Got it. So once you'd exhausted the, the lists, uh, from the frugal, travel guides. How did you then go about acquiring members beyond that? Like what other techniques did you try?
0: So we were very, very naive at the beginning and very much uh, thought that they would come and find
1: us. Oh, the old feel the dreams if you feel that they will come. Marketing That's right. Never, um, never heard that before. No, no. It, uh,
0: clearly it didn't really work to any great degree. Um, but we did have enough traction that you know a few guests would find us and the RV community is really like I've said very tight-knit very word of mouth and you know every time you go camping somewhere and you know end up meeting your neighbor and having a beer around a campfire the first thing that they ask is oh you know where have you come from and where are you going so you know the conversation often would say, oh, I just stayed at this great, you know, boondockers welcome host and uh, and that would, you know, precipitate the, oh, what's that? And so as much as it's very hard to measure, I know that the word of mouth uh, avenue is really a large part responsible for our growth.
1: Got it. Got it. I'm completely ignorant. What is a boondocker? <laughs>
0: So, I mean, the boondocks would be like the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so okay. if you're boondocking, the the traditional term would mean camping without any hookups, right? You don't have electrical power. You don't have any water. Um, when okay. we started Boondockers Welcome, we kind of expected it to be people boondocking in each other's driveway, sort of dry camping is another word cool. that gets used for it. As it turned out, a lot of our hosts actually open, uh, offer electric or water hookups. Some of them even put in like RV pads for their boondockers welcome guests because they wow. enjoy having them so much.
1: But you can see, I mean, I'm not surprised that the word of mouth was the accelerant, though, because I, to your point, it, it, I, I'd imagine there's a fairly tight knit community and there's, a, there's definitely some word of mouth going on. So interesting. So how big did you get this company before you first sort of thought about selling it?
0: So we reached a point where I considered selling, um, back in about 2019. Um, and at that point we had about a hundred thousand dollars in ARR, um.
1: annual recurring revenue for people who don't know that. Acronym. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yep. Okay. Good.
0: Um, I, I can't remember how many hosts we might have had at that time, maybe 1500 hosts um, and, and probably in the like five or 6,000 guests range, maybe a little less than that. <laughs> um, and at that time, my mother, who you know is obviously older than me, was sixty-seven years old and was looking to retire. Um, and sort of, we enjoyed running the company, but she was still traveling and sort of just wanted to be able to do that. She, we were still a company of two at that point. Um, she handled all of the customer support, all of sort of the business development relationships with other RVing companies that we had developed, um, all of our social and marketing, and I was still doing all of the, the technical work. And I wasn't really sure how I felt about, you know, replacing her with somebody else. And at that point, we thought we might just sell. And that would be a, um, a way to sort of both exit and, and, you know, not not hurt our relationship at all and not have to worry about any other messiness. Um, yeah. And we had a. Um, Uh, a gentleman who runs a a company in the RV space who had reached out to us a couple of times asking if we were at all interested and sort of, he happened to reach out one more time, just as we were sort of coming to this, well, maybe it's time uh, moment. And so we did actually go down the road um, at that time. This was in 2019 of of thinking of selling. So, like I said, we had about hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue and the offer that he came back at was about 3.9 times our ARR and um, I actually met with a Uh, Thomas Smale from FE International, an M&A advisor. I met him at a conference that I was at and sort of they, you know, went over those numbers and said, and we actually had our own accountants as well, who sort of went over those numbers and said, yeah, that's a very reasonable offer based on your error and your growth. Um, So we were, we had the letter of intent in hand or, and were. um, about to sign it. And then that conference that I went to, actually, it was MicroConf. I just sort of got really reinvigorated while I was there and decided not to sell. So I came home and came home and told my mom that uh, I wasn't going to let her sell it.
1: Wow. Okay. So we got lots of questions there. So for folks who don't know MicroConf, uh, that's Rob Walling's conference. It's for micro, mostly bootstrapped or mostly bootstrap SaaS companies and apps, uh, great conference. I've heard amazing things about it. So it sounds like you had a great experience there.
0: I did definitely. It was yeah. Life-changing and, um, just I had a lot of great conversations and met a lot of people who were sort of looking to reach to, to have an idea or a business that had anywhere near this. You know, it certainly wasn't a phenomenal success. One hundred thousand dollars a year for two people is you know barely enough to put my, put food on the table. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it it wasn't it it was my full time job. But I obviously I have a spouse who has a good job, so it wasn't it wasn't replacing my my computer engineering salary at that point. But um, mm-hmm. but I had. a a lot of vision when i came back that we could grow it even further and i you know took a lot of um the pointers that i learned at microconf and put them into practice and um i did hire someone to take over all of um the customer support responsibilities and then i took on you know some of the the financial and business development responsibilities from my mom so she could essentially step back from the day-to-day and we continued like that for another two years. And at that point I didn't buy her out. I did consider that. And, Mm -hmm. um, but we just decided that I would take a salary and she would stay on as a 50% equity holder.
1: Okay. That was going to be a question. Did you ever consider taking the 3.9 placing the valuation at whatever 400 grand and saying, okay, here's a check to 200 grand mom.
0: Yeah, it definitely did, did occur to us. And, um, but I mean, In retrospect, I'm quite glad I didn't only because when you do sell a company, if you have bought out a previous uh, co-founder and and they haven't essentially gained from that, you know, that higher sale price than what you bought them out for, I feel like there would be some difficult relationship moments. And if it had just been, you know, a a co-founder, that would have been one thing, but it was my mom.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. One of the many complexities of being in business with a parent, right. Or, or, or a family member of any sort is, is exactly right. You, you buy them out. And two years later, you go on and sell for f- three times more. You're, you you kind of feel like a bit of a heel makes Thanksgiving dinner a little bit, tre-
0: <laughs> a little bit treacherous. Ex- exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was your mom's reaction when you came back from like a and You're like, we're not selling.
0: Uh, I think I must have dropped enough hints when I was, you know, coming back to let her know that that was probably gonna happen. I, I, we invited her over, over for dinner and I, and I, you know, said, nope, we're not gonna sell. And she said, yeah, I thought that might be what you were gonna say. Um, I think she was fine with it, right? I mean, I think it wasn't about the money that would have come in from that sale at all. It was more just about, uh, you know, a relief of the responsibilities that she was looking for. And I was still, you know, willing to offer that. So that was fine for her.
1: What was the reaction of the acquirer who had made the offer of 3.9 when you told him we're we're not selling?
0: He he was disappointed, clearly. Um, I mean, I don't think, you know, lawyers hadn't, or at least we hadn't gotten any lawyers involved. I I know he had done a couple of acquisitions before, so he, I think, you know, had some, some people that helped put his letter of intent together or whatever, but I don't think he was out of pocket a whole ton of money for having, you know... Uh, lost that opportunity.
1: So, what is it that you learned in at the microconf conference that you came to start to apply to the business? In other words, how did you improve its value over time?
0: Well, I mean, part of it was entirely mental and just getting over my own imposter syndrome stumbling blocks. You know, the the idea that I couldn't hire somebody was something that had sort of weighed on me that I didn't want to be somebody's boss. And then I came back and realized "Eh, this is not that hard. I can do this. Um, and so that, that wasn't really necessarily something I learned. It was just something that I, I sort of felt as I realized and talked with other people that that it's, they don't have some superhero superpower that I don't. Um, but as far as actually building the business, um, we raised our prices, uh, you know, almost immediately, or, you know, it took a little while to get that in order. But we that was one of the biggest pieces of advice that um, every microconf I think seems to harp on. But it's like the the levers that you have to, to increase your revenue, raising your prices is the easiest one. And we were already, I think at that point we were only charging $30 a year, which was really underpriced.
1: And what was the membership's reaction to the increase in price? You recall, I mean, it was much different scale, obviously. But when Netflix a couple of years ago went to raise their price unilaterally, it like basically caused <laughs> the internet to break. There were so many people who were outraged that Netflix would do that. You're obviously different business, but what was your members' so, reaction?
0: The fact that we had such a sort of low. Uh, lifetime value, meaning that we didn't actually get that many years of renewal out of each customer, meant that it actually wasn't a huge, a a bad business decision for us to just grandfather in all our current customers. Um, And in addition, you know, churn happens a lot because people don't necessarily know if they're going to continue traveling. And so they wouldn't renew their membership. But we instead, we grandfathered in. Uh, Current members at their existing $30 a year price and promised that as long as they didn't let their membership lapse, they could keep that price. So that really actually helped bump up that lifetime value because people would continue to renew even though they weren't sure if they were going to be traveling that year.
1: Yeah, the old fear of missing out strategy, right? You're like, oh, well, if you churn and you come back, it's going to cost you almost twice as much. So got it. So you grandfathered in. The guys and gals at thirty a month, thirty a year, excuse me, and then for new people you went to fifty. You got over the imposter syndrome. I, I find this fascinating because I, I think there is. Look, there, there are two types of entrepreneurs. Like there are there are some entrepreneurs who are very comfortable hiring, and they're like, yeah, of course I'm going to hire it. Like I'm not doing it myself, and that they, like I get that sort of persona. There is this other personality type, and maybe you could speak to this where, gosh, when I, that first employee is like this commitment, right? Now I, now have some, I'm responsible for someone else's mortgage. And, and it's this big kind of, how did you get over that bump?
0: Uh, I think a lot of it came to realizing that, you know, putting in place the processes and, and, you know, checklists and and having some good onboarding would help me feel a little relieved from that. And, and since we were essentially replacing, you know, my mother's job with the customer support role, I mean, we had a lot of, you know, canned answers and, and things like that already in place. It wasn't that difficult for us to sort of Put together, you know, a, a bit of an onboarding and and some training. And once I realized that, you know, if I did that, then even if that support person didn't work out, I would still have that, and I would be able to do it again and hire another person to take over that role. Um, and I think both my mother and I suffer a little bit from just perfectionism and not thinking that anybody else is going to do it yeah, you're the control right freaks. way. <laughs> a Little bit. <laughs> But I, I, you know, I, I, I was able to convince her that, you know, as long as we are willing to pay enough money, we can find somebody who is absolutely skilled enough to do this. We, you know, we knew we weren't going to outsource our customer support to some Indian call center because we've, you know, we've got a lot of senior citizens in our customer base and, you know, American red blooded, you know, not really interested in talking to somebody with a a foreign accent about how to, you know, how to RV travel. It's just, it's unfortunately a a very homogeneous customer base. Um, And so it it was really important to us to have, you know, somebody local to North America who understood RVing. And we actually Mm -hmm. ended up hiring that customer support person from our membership we you know put out to in our newsletter we said we're hiring a customer support person we had 200 applicants for the job so and and we we and this was obviously pre-pandemic we said you can work remotely. You can work from your RV. You can make your own hours. We sort of, you know, only requested that they check in a couple of times a day to to answer support requests. It's not a business. Um, it's not a B two B business. So we know that our customers are not generally, you know, knocking down our door with. You know important things that need to be answered in the next 10 minutes. So a 24-hour turnaround was fine. So we were offering a really flexible working environment and it was really appealing. And yeah, we hired an amazing customer support person originally just um, on a part-time contract for 15 hours a week. And she eventually uh, came on full-time as sort of our community director. She also had a marketing background. So she took on a lot of our marketing responsibilities as well. It was a, a great decision.
1: Amazing. Amazing. So again, things that you did to improve the value of your company, number one, you raised prices. Number two, you hired to take this uh, sort of a customer support piece and marketing piece off your shoulders. What else did you do to improve the business after MicroConf?
0: Um, we had already started, um, using social media a lot, not necessarily, you know, Facebook posts, but we had found Facebook groups worked really well for us, um, sort of giving the RV community a specific place to discuss our offering, um, just amongst themselves. And that worked really, really well. And we sort of doubled down on that a lot, um, just more, more conscious moderating and, and, you know, trying to funnel people towards that Facebook group. And that actually really helped drive sales in a,
1: to be clear, you, these were groups that you created and hosted and moderated.
0: Yes. So we created and hosted and moderated the group, but we tried to be very hands-off and sort of just let the, let the other members sell it for us because they were amazing at that.
1: Got it. That's that's super helpful. So the Facebook groups were great, the onboarding, the the customer support person, raising prices. Anything else that you did that that, that improved the business, its value?
0: Um, we again, I think we were already sort of doing this prior to microcomp, but one of the biggest um, drivers of, of just sales every week was a newsletter that we sent out that you know we had. Um, played around with different newsletter formats over the years. Um, but we finally settled on essentially newsletter that was just here are the 10 or whatever, the 20 new hosts who signed up in the last week. Um, and that was just a huge driver for sales every week. We would see a giant spike in, in that because it was so easy to cool read.
1: It's like you imagine, oh, I could go to like Oxford County, Ohio, and there's this great village that looks over this hilltop. And like you could really start to, it would be fun to look forward to that, even though you have no plans to go to that place.
0: Exactly. I would look oh, through them every cool. week. And, and yeah, I mean, yeah. some of them that the pictures were just, you know, mind blowing, just, you know, this horse in a field with mountains in the background. And you're like, oh my gosh, I could stay there for free. So yeah. it, it, it sold itself.
1: I want to opt in for the newsletter. Do you guys still do the <laughs> newsletter? I'm like, where do I opt
0: in for the newsletter? I don't think all the new hosts are in the newsletter anymore. Uh, uh Our acquirers have put the uh, new hosts a little bit behind a paywall. I think so.
1: Okay, so let's let's get into that. So so you're making these changes, and 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 what's what impacts it having on sales? What when you had the first offer, you're at about a hundred thousand in ARR it sounds like you got it up from there when you started to sell it a a second time.
0: Yeah. We um, more than doubled our growth every year for the next uh, two years until we did sell. So um, both um, hosts, number of hosts as well as, as number of guests, which obviously we need to grow both sides of the marketplace to make that happen. So it was, partially those changes that we put into effect, Mm -hmm. but I mean, there was also huge market of forces that really helped uh, give us some, some headwinds.
1: Yeah. We've already talked about the pandemic. So hundred to 200, 200 to 400. So you were sort of, if I'm reading between the lines, kind of like half a million to a million of ARR, that, that sort of space. I don't know. Yeah.
0: that sort of all Yeah.
1: Got it. Okay. That's that's great. So really a dramatic improvement over over the first nine years because it was nine years to get to a hundred.
0: I think 000. seven seven years to okay. get to, to that hundred thousand. But, but then, like I said, that was very much a you know side project for the first five years of those
1: seven. Okay. Months, so. Okay. Okay. But, but it's considerable growth at a relatively mature stage of the business, which is exciting to see for folks who are slamming their heads against the wall thinking, is this ever going to work? Is this ever going to work? I think the message at least you would deliver or from your example is that you've got to stick to it for a relatively long time before.
0: I mean, being able to put in more time and effort, obviously, I think we could have moved the, moved the needle earlier than we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was able to, you know, it, for me personally, it was when my kids started school full time, I was able to really focus on the business more. And mm-hmm. that was sort of, you know, from 2017 to 2019, we went from probably 30K to 100K ARR. So that was a pretty decent swing up as well. And then up and to the right from there.
1: So, what was the trigger that that made you decide to sell the second time, if I can use that term?
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, things were going well. Um, it, we were probably reaching a point where we would we should start thinking of hiring more people. It was still just myself and Carrie, who uh, what we, I had hired to to replace my mom, um, and the. Market, like we've talked about, had, you know, really, really um, gone nuts. Um, And I was approached by uh, Joel Holland, who is the CEO of Harvest Hosts. We had had a, you know, friendly relationship for a few years, sort of just keeping in touch. Uh, Harvest Hosts is a, uh, another sort of alternative camping uh, offering. They orchestrate um, stays at wineries and breweries and also work on sort of a membership model like we did. So it was a very complementary product. We had like reciprocal discounts with each other and had had that for years. Um, about 50% of our members were also members in Harvest Hosts. Hmm. So when he approached um, uh, us in early 2021 and asked if we were interested in selling, um my initial reaction was, and eh, no, we're having too much fun," uh, which was pretty much my standard line for everybody who asked at that point. But um, he was persistent, and you know, <laughs> said name your number, which I know is not really the thing you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to name your number, but um, at the same time, you know, my mother was pushing seventy, and you know, she and I were both still taking dividends from the company. We weren't. Um, I I took a salary, we took dividends as well, but, you know, we weren't funneling a lot of money back into the company, partly because I knew that this was sort of funding my mother's retirement to some degree. So the idea that, you know, this could be peak RV, I don't know. We were very much in a very, very RV positive, uh, atmosphere at that point point. And I know that sort of, this is my mom's whole nest egg essentially. Um, And I didn't want, I, I, part of me worried that, you know we had something that was a very valuable asset at this point and I didn't want to go over the the peak. I had heard, you know, too many stories about other founders who, you know, said no, when I think Rand Fishkin told the story in his Lost Lost and Founder book book. about, you know, going over the, just riding over the peak and getting a great offer and saying, no, I think we can get way more than that. And obviously we weren't anywhere near the level that he was in that story, but it resonated with me. And I thought, I don't want to ride this over the top. Um, Yeah. And so when that offer came, and again it was such a, a, a good synergy for that particular acquirer, um, it, it seemed like a natural time to just go ahead.
1: Got it. And so, did you have any sense uh, of what it might be worth? So clearly, you're now, you know, half million in ARR or more, and you'd already had an offer of four times revenue. So you're starting. I'm assuming you're starting to do the math, thinking, okay, this is this is definitely a seven figure business, you know, exit I'm looking at it. It could be,
0: it could yeah. be bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So we had kept in touch with um, FE International, the brokers who we had talked to prior um, and they had sort of done annual evaluations based on our uh, p statements. And um, so I had a, a good idea of what, it was worth from that perspective, from a, you know, ARR times uh, some kind of multiple perspective.
1: Multiple but I also, what were they saying?
0: I, it was, you know, I get still in like that three to four range. So, I mean, but I also recognize that that multiple is probably more aimed at, you know, uh, a, a, um, private equity or somebody who's looking to buy it mm-hmm. for uh, a, a financial, for financial reasons. Whereas this was obviously more of a strategic growth uh, opportunity that Harvest Host was looking for. They had, I knew they had just taken, um, they had taken a bunch of, of funding. They had announced a $37 million round uh, only a wow. few months prior to that. So, I mean, I knew they had a bunch of money to spend and the, the, you know, the, the reason for their purchase was they had, you know, about 3000 winery hosts. And I knew that they would essentially want to add our hosts to that mix in some way to essentially increase their, their footprint. So it was, it was definitely a strategic uh, buy. So I knew that, you know, our, our, uh, our, our multiple would be able to be substantially bigger than that. Three 3. To four.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting when a strategic acquirer, a company you think has a has a really good, you know, a good rationale to buy your company raises a truckload of money, like $37 million. Uh, I think there's there's sort of two things that can happen. Um one is that they've got a war chest to go buy your business, which clearly you hoped and and thought that Joel was clearly coming to you thinking, you know, with that intent, the other side though, is that they've got a war chest to compete with you. And, and if you don't nibble on the offer, it it could mean that, okay, fine. Well, the gloves are off. We're going to go do something on our own to compete with you. Did, did that cross your, your mind that Joel would take that $37 million and create his own version of Boondogger's welcome?
0: Maybe briefly, but we had a very good brand and very devoted, uh, customer and host base. They, um, yeah, they, like I said, they, they were the lifeblood of our business and, and we had a moat really that, you know, the, the brand that we had built was substantial. And I knew that, um, and, during the acquisition process, the due diligence process, Harvest Hosts actually, you know, went and did their own sort of survey. And the our NPR scores were through the roof. And we, you know, hadn't made a habit of doing NPR surveys regularly, but it didn't surprise me at all.
1: When you say NPR, I'm used to the acronym NPS Net Promoter Score. Do you mean NPS? Yes. No,
0: sorry, that is what I mean. Thank you. Yes. Oh,
1: yeah, cool. I, I, I just want to make sure for our listeners that, yeah. that we're talking the same language. Got it. So so they did an NPS. Uh, it, did they do it with both the hosts as well as the members yes and where did you see the greatest moat was it with the hosts or more than members
0: um I, both i think the hosts as the hosts are much more um uh, loyal because they, some of our hosts had been hosts for you know the better part of a decade um, and harder
1: and to like it's i could imagine it's hard to yeah harder to replace cuz the members kind of come and go people get interested in our being and they kind of lose interest but member but the hosts that's a that's a that's a very attractive asset i would think and hard to just kind of replicate overnight
0: and that was i think the hardest part about selling was we knew that if we were going to sell we needed to sell to somebody who was going to protect and and take care of our hosts in a way that didn't destroy that asset and i mean obviously you know it's out of my hands once i've sold it but um what we built has you know personal meaning to us as well so we didn't want to to see it dismantled or or you know sent in a direction where the hosts no longer felt valued um how did you
1: how did you ensure they were going to feel valued i mean did you do paper something with Joel, like a writ legal protections so that he, he couldn't do certain things or was it just a handshake deal? Like how we, did you protect Yeah, those?
0: we didn't do anything written in that regard. And I mean, maybe in retrospect, we should have, um, but I, I got a very good feeling from Joel and throughout the entire process, it was, you know, he was very much a, a man of his word. And, um, the, essentially we were promised that, Boondockers Welcome would be kept as its own sort of brand and tier. The um, Harvest Hosts did, you know, integrate them together in that you can buy a Harvest Host membership and for an upgrade, you can also get a Boondockers Welcome membership. So they, you know, they've got that expansion revenue opportunity um, and they had a much larger customer base than us. So so lots of people to send towards that expansion revenue. Um, But keeping those as separate entities was part of that negotiation, just so that our hosts who, you know, weren't making any money as opposed to harvest host hosts are usually, you know, like I said, wineries and they the expectation there is that you're going to come in and buy a bottle of wine, right. They're doing this mm, as sure. a, as a business, a small, you know, small businesses trying to improve their, their, their revenue stream. Um, but we, we knew that we didn't want our hosts to feel like they were suddenly being, being treated as a commodity that, you know, we didn't want the guests who show up at a winery and say, I've paid you. I have bought my bottle of wine. Now I can, you know, not even say thank you. You know, for our our hosts, it was much more about, you know, just having honest social interactions and, you know, gratitude from their guests.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. So Joel says, name your number. Would you say?
0: Uh, Well, I said, I'll get back to you. (laughs) Um, At that point, uh, I mean, I had had an internal number in my head at one point and I pretty much, you know, multiplied that by two and a half. Um, But I also went, um, we have a a family, a friend of my husband's actually, who he went to university with, who is now the CEO of a venture-backed startup and has, you know, just a lot of, of knowledge about um, valuations and and sort of, you know, was able to sit there and think, well, if I was acquiring you, you know, what would my payback period be and what would I be willing to pay? And, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, this is actually a pretty reasonable number. And so I did actually go back with a number and I said this is this is what we're looking for. Um and it was something that my mother and I obviously had discussed and said yeah we would be we couldn't say no to that number. So I,
1: I have to ask what's what was the number? Uh, Every listener of the show is going, you gotta ask John, what what was your magic number?
0: It was mid-seven figures is what I will say. And God. they came back to be it was very, very close to that. So we were we were happy and like I said we said yeah if this if they reach this then we can't really say no so we said yes okay so
1: a couple of questions um, this is a goofy question but when you went back to Joel with the dream number. Was it in writing or did you speak it to him? Did you orally say it's X million dollars or did you email him? I just
0: wrote it in an email. I think that's all okay. it was, was a number in an okay. email. And he, of course, so he, now has a board because he's got funding. So he had to go take it to the board and, and get approval. And, you know, they had did their own valuation and and came back and said, well, based on this, this is a generous based on our valuations. This is, I think his words were, it's like, it's better valuation than we got when we raised money. So yeah. I kind of felt like if, if he's being truthful there, then we're doing okay.
1: Yeah. I think, I think you did. So you didn't really get a sense from Joel about his reaction. What are the beauties of, of throwing out a number in person? As you can see the sort of see the body language of the acquirer, like if they kind of lurch backwards and throw their eyes up in, in the air thinking that, you know, but in an email, you don't get the bet. Did, did he respond at all with any sense that of, of whether he thought that was anywhere close to being what they would, would pay?
0: Um, I think he essentially just said, I'm going to have to go get, talk to my board and get back to you. And honestly, I, I, I see what you're saying about the in-person, but I felt like there's a bit of a double-edged sword there. And I, oh, I wasn't sure. sure how, how, you know, confident and strong willed and, and poker faced I would be able to be in that conversation. So the email yeah. was definitely the way for me.
1: Yeah, no, I wasn't suggesting you do it in, in person. I just was saying I was curious about his physical reaction to receiving it, but obviously over email, you, you can't. Um, that's great. One of the things that I've heard from a lot of other guests is the moment they send an email like that, the clock starts ticking and they start to get nervous, right? If, if they don't get a response after a day, they think the deal's off. And then if they don't get a response for three days, it's like, Oh, what did I do? I've totally overshot this. And then a week goes by and they still haven't got an email. And then they're like, you know, I didn't really mean that number. What we would really exam-. And Then they're negotiating with themselves. <laughs> and, like, did you get into that period, that, 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 that sense of, of sitting on your hands, waiting for Joel to respond?
0: I think our, you know, that, and a, you know, best alternative to a negotiated uh, agreement was just not selling. So, you know, and, and continuing as we were, we hadn't sought out this offer. And so for, for me, I, I was able to sort of say, I'm, I'm just going to walk away and not check my email for the next 24 hours and not stress about it. And I don't think he left us hanging too, too long. Um, but yeah, I, 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 didn't really second guess that.
1: Mm-hmm. How did you and your mom arrive at the number, this, this sort of dream number? Was she involved And in, I'm assuming as a 50% shareholder, she was very much involved. How, how did it, like, take me inside the room and when you and your mom are talking about that?
0: Well, like I said before, I had sort of this, you know, valuation from the, the brokers that we talked to about, you know, based on ARR and growth rates, that this is what the number would be. And... I knew that that wasn't enough. I knew that, you know, it was at this point, it was March. So this is, you know, just before the travel season really takes off. It's a very, you know, seasonal business. You you do most of your revenue between like May and August. And so, you know, I knew that there was significant increase in that ARR coming still, right. The, the year before our error had actually taken a significant hit during the beginning of the pandemic when everybody, you know, hunkered down and didn't do anything. So that that number was already, you know, a little bit depressed because of that. So we sort of took all those things into consideration and, and to some degree, just kind of said, "Wouldn't it be nice to have this much money <laughs> and not have to run this business anymore?" <laughs> So, I, you know, we, we did. We had lots of, I mean, at that point, it was still pretty lockdown covid So, you know, a lot of Zoom conversations about that um, back and forth. And it was pretty easy for us to agree that, yeah, if th- this number is great and if they hit that, then we're willing to, to go ahead and otherwise we'll just continue doing what we're doing.
1: So Joel came back at a number close to what you could you give me a percentage basis of how close? Like, was it ninety five percent of the number, or ninety percent, eighty percent? It was
0: like ninety five percent.
1: Wow. So, so okay. So, pretty okay, great. And how was it? How was it structured? Was it one hundred percent cash? Was it a portion of earnout, or were you asked to carry equity into into Harvest Host? Like, what was the structure?
0: Yeah. So it was pretty much all cash. It was. Um, about 80% upfront on closing day and the other 20% over monthly, over a six month transition period, just essentially contingent on us being available during those six months to make sure the transition went smoothly. But there was no earn out, no, you know, acqui-hire. I wasn't expected to stay on past that six months. And Joel knew that, that, that obviously my mom had already sort of tapped out and that I, you know, I had told him, previously that if I ever sold, it wouldn't be because I, you know, wanted to keep the money and stay on. It would be because I was interested in moving on to something else.
1: Yeah. 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 That makes, that makes good sense. Well, it sounds like an incredible deal. I mean, getting out with six month consulting contracts. I mean, that's a pretty sweet, sweet deal. And I think a lot of people listening to this would be like, I want that. <laughs>
0: so yeah. Amazing. I was, I was pretty <laughs> pleased about that for sure.
1: Yeah, I should imagine. I should imagine. Hey, are you willing to do our due diligence little uh, lightning round of questions here?
0: Oh, sure.
1: Okay, so I'm going to ask you a quick question. I'm just, I'm looking for a quick answer and I won't do any follow-up questions. I just uh, want to know your kind of gut reaction to a couple of questions before I let you go. Um, What is the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to pull over on you? Uh...
0: Gosh, I, I don't know. I feel like we've had good, good experiences with acquirers. I don't want to, I don't want to accuse anybody of being slimy. Um, just, I think. Any, I, any I, of those VCs ask, that came knocking on your yeah, door? sort of. I probably just asking you to be quicker in your response than you're really comfortable being.
1: Biggest mistake you made in the selling process.
0: Not nailing down how many hours a week I was consulting for. It was a broad, you'll be paid X a month for your consulting services without any sort of, I, I, would, I would do it as an hourly contract in the future.
1: Great tip. Uh, what was the lowest emotional point you reached during the exit process?
0: Uh, trying to deal with New York lawyers funded by venture capital uh, acquirers of our acquirers or uh, investors of our acquirers. Um, ch- just trying to stomp all over my, you know, Canadian lawyer. Um, there was definitely, there was, there was a moment where, you know, they're in the States, we're in Canada, you know, there's all sorts of of jurisdictional questions. And there was like lots of, you know, you should be adhering to American uh, laws and all of these things. And my lawyer was very much, you cannot, you cannot guarantee that you have adhered to in American law because you're a Canadian company. And we were only selling the assets. We weren't actually selling the uh, corporation. So, you know, yeah. So um. So th- there was a lot of back and forth and there were some low moments there where I was like, this is just all going to blow up because, you know, their lawyers refused to admit to accept the fact that we're a Canadian company.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Highest emotional point you reached during the selling process?
0: Um, I think knowing that my uh, one employee um, was brought on board and given a really great role and a pay increase and I think, a, a, and a, a promotion and that, um, that even now, you know, we keep in touch and I know she's, um, sh- sh- it's been a great opportunity for her. And that was really important to me.
1: One thing you wished you had known someone had pulled you aside and told you before you went through the selling process. <sighs>
0: If you're considering raising your prices, do it sooner rather than later because that makes a huge difference in your revenue numbers that are going to affect what you're actually going to be able to get. Don't don't wait.
1: What resources did you look at to educate yourself about the exit planning process? Was there a, an online course, a conference? You, remember, you mentioned MicroConf was super helpful. Is there anything else in the way of resources that you drew from?
0: Well, your book, John, both your books, the, the art of selling your business. I, I certainly read during, um, during this whole process and oh, built to sell. I had listened to the audiobook version of that several years prior, but, uh, but definitely, you know, that, and, um, I think, uh, Chris Voss's, um, yes, negotiation uh, what, book. I'm trying to remember what yeah. it's called.
1: Uh, yeah. Never split the difference. A great book. It's yes. super, super yeah. good. Yeah. Chris Voss is amazing. If you watch him on YouTube too, he's a great, he's, he's excellent. Anything else that you could point people to any online courses or anything, any authors, Chris Voss, thank you for the call, by the way, Chris Voss is amazing. Anyone else?
0: Um. Honestly, I, I can't think of um, the, the, I'm trying to think up of off my, I feel like Tyler Tringus, I think has a, you know, a blog post just about how he sold. He's been um, on you know, sell radio. Yeah. We'll,
1: we'll put that in the show notes. He's, it's yeah. a great, it's a great interview.
0: Yeah. So he, he, he had some great sort of pointers and I, I looked for that both for, you know, the, the prior uh, acquisition offer we had as well. That was a, a great um, a resource.
1: Great. And we've also mentioned a couple of folks uh, today, uh, uh, Rob Walling, you sold, you uh, um Drip, Drip has yeah. been on the show. We'll put that in the show notes built thes.com as well as Rand Fishkin, lost and Founder has been on the show. So we'll put all those in links in the show notes for this episode because those are really you've referenced those and they're great stories as well to listen yeah. to. Um, final question, what trophy did you buy yourself to celebrate and commemorate this achievement?
0: Yeah, the sad truth is, um, I bought my kids some laptops, um, and I haven't really bought myself anything. We 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 did buy a family uh, VR headset, but uh, my goal is to buy us a trip somewhere. But with COVID, we haven't really been ready to travel yet. So that's that's the future uh, big expense that we're next
1: time for. we do this. I want to hear that you have a trophy that you can point me towards that commemorates this you can't do all this incredible uh and not have something that you that you can point to physically to uh to commemorate the amazing accomplishment tell i mean you've you've had this great success We're, what are you doing now are you fully retired or you want to do a new thing what's what's uh, what's next
0: Ah, so retirement is just, it's too early. I still have school-aged kids. I don't know what I would do with myself all day if, uh, if I was retired. So, um, I'm starting another business and oh, cool. unlike, unlike this one, which sort of, like I said, we were very naive and, you know, didn't know what we were doing. I feel like this time I've got a little more clarity and, um, I'm building, uh, a. business B two B marketing SaaS essentially uh, one of the problems that I discovered while we were running the Darker's Welcome was just the number of uh, email subscribers who didn't complete the confirmation step in their double opt-in. So my business subscribe sense tries to help uh, b- businesses increase that confirmation rate for their their email lists.
1: Cool. a Very discrete application. Very, very specific, but very easy to understand. So that's, that's at subscribesense.
0: subscribesense.com. Yep.
1: Dot com. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes at built to sell radio.com. Hannah mass. This was super fun. Thanks for doing it.
0: Thanks so much for having me, John. It was really a pleasure.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Anna Mast. For show notes, including links to everything we referenced in today's episode, Rand Fishkin's episode, Rob Walling's episode, Tyler Tringus, just go to builttosell.com and search out the episode page. Hey, if you're wondering how you can support the show, the best thing you can do is nominate a guest, builttosellradio.com slash nominate. The other thing you can do is consider rating the show on any of the big podcasting platforms while you're there hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode today's show was produced by Haley Parkhill special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for audio and video engineering and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you I will be back in your earbuds next week thanks again for listening